Hello, I'm Michael McMullen. This is the World Snooker Tour podcast. It's great to be back for another season, and our first guest of the new campaign is one of the all-time greats. Wonderful to have the four-time world champion, Mark Selby, here. Mark, welcome along. Thank you very much. Here's a thought for you, Mark. By the end of next season, you will have been on the tour for a quarter of a century. 1999 was when you started out. You were just turning 16 at the time. So what sort of expectations did you have about the pro career that lay ahead for you? Uh, it's a tough one, really. I mean, like you say, I played on the Challenge Tour. Uh, it was at Stockport in Hazel Grove, I remember. And you had to finish in the top 20 to get on the tour. But the pros was allowed to play on it as well. So they was already on the tour and they could even knock you out and stop you from getting your tour card. But after the four events, they took the pros out of it. And then obviously the, the top highest ranked players outside the players on the tour got the spot and I finished 13th. So I got on the tour. I uh, didn't really have that many expectations. I think the first year on there was just basically just to try and find my feet and just get a little bit of experience really. Uh, if I was to fall off, I wouldn't have been too devastated because you were still young and you got plenty of time on your side. As long as you just gained a lot of experience and, and learned a lot from it. Uh, I was fortunate enough to manage to stay on the tour. Uh, and been on the tour ever since so yeah I mean obviously all you ever wanted to do as a child was trying to become world champion and world number one but every child dreams of that I suppose it doesn't mean to say you're going to go on and achieve it but uh, I didn't really have any goals as a a junior just obviously just to enjoy playing really and just try and win as many matches as possible. You were still a kid really in a man's world so did you find it hard to fit into that environment even off the table? Yeah, it was tough because I mean it wasn't. It was I lost my father only a few months just before that. So uh, yeah, it was tough. Like I was so used to going around to every single tournament on the junior level uh, with him, uh, and to not have him there. So it was it was quite tough in in the early part of it. Uh, yeah, and and like I say, expectations. I think at the time I was the youngest professional mm. ever at that time, and then the following year I think Tom Ford got on and and beat me by a few months, but. Uh, no, I mean, it was a great experience because what I remember at the time, we was going to the venues where there was playing the tournament to a finish. So, for instance, the British Open was at the Plymouth Pavilions. I think I remember winning two matches and losing to Gary Wilkinson, I think. I think I beat Wayne Brown first game 5-4 and then Peter Lyons 5-4. Then lost to Gary Wilkinson to get to the televised stage, I think. So, I mean, the format, I was fortunate that we went to every venue where the big events was and if you obviously done well, you just carried on and the TV started where now you sort of play behind closed doors at the qualifiers and then... If you do qualify for an event, it might not be till a month or two months down the line. So the format at the time when I got on was very, very good. Things started happening for you a couple of years in. You had that great run to the semi-finals in China. You beat Hendry and O'Sullivan along the way. You got to your first final the year after that, the Scottish Open, beaten yeah. by David Gray. So you were doing it on and off, really, weren't you? You were having good tournaments here and there. I guess from that point on, it's about trying to build consistency. It is, yeah. I mean, obviously it was very tough. I mean, it was tough then, it's even tougher now. But uh, yeah, back then, I think the biggest thing, obviously, as a player, you have you have belief in yourself, but until you actually start doing it and get the results and get to the latter stages, I still don't think it's hard to have that belief deep down. And once, as you say, I got to the semi-finals out in China, beating the likes of Andrew and O'Sullivan as well. Well, if you're not going to get belief from that, then mm-hmm. you need to sort of hang your cue up, I suppose. So from then on, obviously, I told myself, look, obviously, I want to try and get to the top. Obviously, I'm beating them kind of players. I'm getting to the semi-final. There's no reason why I can't go on and go one more and get to a final. Uh, obviously, you still believe, like, you, if you get to a final, you can win it. But, I mean, I thought if I get to a semi-final, there's no reason why you can't get to a final. As you say, the following year or a few months later, I got to the final against David Gray, lost 9-7, I think it was. Uh, and then sort of went backwards for a little while, I think. And why was that? 
Uh, I don't know. I mean, because I'm not like a, an arrogant person, so it wasn't to the point where I felt like I'd sort of made it before I already had. Uh, I was sort of, obviously I was with uh, a, a girl back in the day because uh, I lost my father, my sort of head was all over the place at the time. Some days I was okay, some days I wasn't. And obviously just having the thoughts of him not being there all the while, never really got over it, even to the... To, even to today that obviously hence why I've gone through the mental health and stuff but uh, I ended up getting with a girl uh, at a young age uh, who was like brilliant to me at the time she was like a rock and a shoulder to cry and then we got close and then we was together for a while then I ended up like getting married at such a young age she had two children of her own which I sort of treated as my own when I was with her and sort of stopped putting the hours in as much you know because obviously I was in a relationship where obviously I was treating them as my own and obviously Snook was sort of second for a little while because obviously I was trying to play the father figure to them as well. So it was tough, and especially for someone so young, obviously I took on a lot of responsibilities at an early age. I mean, obviously my own decision, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was, it was tough, and I think it sort of affected my snooker a little bit. In 2007, though, out of the blue, you get to the World Championship final, having come all the way from the mm -hmm. qualifying rounds, and you ran John Higgins quite close. Now everyone was surprised, as you would be, yeah. a player that far down the rankings. My memory, though, of that weekend, Mark, is that you didn't seem surprised at all and that you felt this was where you were always heading. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I mean, probably not where I always thought I was heading, but because, like I say, I'd done, done it in the past in previous comps and got to the last stages, I sort of knew that I had the ability to go on and do it, but obviously until you do it, other people don't believe that. And uh, getting to the World Championships, I remember 2007, I think I was 5-0 down against Stephen Lee in the first round. I think, uh, and then I managed to come out of the session 5-4, uh, and then I come back, I think I went 8-5 in front from 5-0 down and, and managed to win that game. And, and and from then on, I don't know, I just got like the self-belief back, which I basically had when I got to the semi-finals out in China, I think, and just kicked mm -hmm. on from there. And uh, and played a good tournament. Uh, I played a great game against, I think we played Murphy in the semi-final, 16-14 down, 1-17-16, which was a fantastic game. And then obviously struggled a little bit on the first day against John, but rightly so. I mean, the first world final, it's a massive, massive occasion for me. I mean, my final really at that time was basically beating Sean. I mean, you're playing John first to 18, you're probably a little bit out of your comfort zone. Never been there before. He's obviously already won it going into that final. Uh, so the first day, I was sort of all at sea and John played okay. He didn't play his best, but he was just picking, up, picking off the pieces really. 12-4 down, I remember, after the first day. And then the second day, I thought, look, just go out there and try and relax and let your arm go. Before I know it, I got back to 14-13 and in with a chance, but John showed his class towards the end. You dominated the Monday afternoon session mm. to really close the gap. And John said that if there'd been no stop, if you just kept playing all the way through to the finish, that you definitely would have won. Was that how you felt about it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, John sort of like mentally was sort of gone. I still remember we got pulled off at 12-10, I think. Yeah. And... Uh, he just went to walk out the arena and completely forgot that we were going to shake my hand. He had to come back and apologise, shut my hand. And I think if I'd have stayed out there and played the two frames of the session, I think the way John's head was, he was sort of like gone at one point. I probably had definitely gone 12 ball. And then coming out at night, I'm still not guaranteed to have won the comp. But uh, I think obviously there's a big difference between coming back out at night level than being two frames behind still. Fantastic. 
you'd got to the world final and that got you into the top 16 for the first time. You'd never even played at the Masters, obviously, but then you did the following season and you went and won it first time, all those close finishes. So that, allied to what you'd done at the Crucible, Mark, really singled you out as a big stage, big occasion player. Yeah, it was unbelievable. And I think, obviously, winning the Masters, the only reason why I was capable of winning that is because I've had the experience at the Crucible playing in that one-table setup. You don't get a bigger arena than that, the pinnacle of our sport. And playing some good snooker as well out in there. It's not as if I collapsed in the semi-final or the final. So, obviously, that gave me the self-belief. Look, obviously, like, there's no reason why I can't win any tournament or play now. I'm getting to the final. I'm competing with these top boys and beating some of them as well. So, there's no reason why I can't go out there and do it. Come from nowhere before the World Championships. I'm getting as a qualifier. Next minute, I'm in the final of the Worlds. Now I'm in the 16, so I'm in the Masters. Yeah, I was sort of getting there just free-rolling, and I think probably hence the reason why I went on to win it. You ended up owning the Masters for the next few years. So <laughs> much success in that event. And as the seasons went by, you seemed to be just getting a little better every year. You got to number one. Then we come to the 2014 World Championship. I think it's fair to say, though, that by the standards you were setting at that time, it had only been an OK season for you leading up to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't remember that far back too much. I mean, like I say, going into the 2014 World Championship, it wasn't as if I was like the form player going into it and everyone was like, well, probably one of the top two favourites to win it because I was far from, as you say, going into that tournament. And I sort of found my form as the tournament went on, really, as it's probably the best thing to do at the cruise where you don't want to peak too soon and play your good stuff in the first few rounds and then sort of dwindle away. So that's how I felt like I played uh, Looking back, uh, obviously playing running that final was fantastic. I always said to people, if I could win the world just once and pick somebody I wanted to play in the final and become world champion, it would be Ronnie because for me, he's the greatest player to play our game. So to win that and beat Ronnie in the final was incredible, really, because if I'd have never won it again and only won it once, to beat him in the final was great. He hadn't lost a world final prior to that. He'd won it the previous two years. He was starting to look a bit unbeatable, really, at the Crucible. But we always say it was that finish to the first day where you stopped him getting into a virtually unassailable position that proved decisive in the end. Yeah, I think I was 8-3 down and 10-5 down. Uh, and I remember pinching the last two frames to go 10-7. And even walking out the arena, because was, it was very similar to the Higgins final in 2007, I felt really fatigued the first day, mentally and physically. As the harder I tried, it seemed to be the worse my performance got. And uh, playing Ronnie 8-3 down and 10-5 down, managed just to find something from somewhere, nick the last two frames. And even just going to bed that night, I felt like I was 10-7 in front rather than 10-7 behind. And I think Ronnie sort of probably felt the opposite, thinking, look, I'll probably sort of let that one get away a little bit. I probably could have put the match to bed. If he goes like 11-5, it's probably as, as good as done, really. Or 11-6, it's as good as done. So uh, obviously you can't sort of give Ronnie that lead, but... 10-7, I'm thinking next morning if I come out and win 3-1 the first mini-session, it's 11-all and you're game on, and that's what happened. And it never looked like he settled into the final day. It's often been said you got under his skin. Was that how it felt to you? I don't know. I mean, that wasn't my intention. I just always play the frame for what it is. I don't go out there and think, right, I'm going to mess this frame up and try and break them out their rhythm. I just play the frame for how it is, and if it goes scrappy, I'm willing to scrap it out. If it goes open, I try and score if I can. Uh, and I remember a pink he missed at, mm. I think it was 11-all, and I still remember to this day, I looked at him and he was like stood there like preparing for the shot and he sort of breathed in and took a deep breath. And I thought, he ain't going to miss the pink. I thought, obviously, like sometimes Ronnie plays games and I think like he's probably just doing it just to mack out his under pressure and really is not. But then he's hit the pink twice as hard. And I remember he only needed the pink and he's hit it hard and tried to play for the black. And I think his head must have just been confused and 
hence a little bit under pressure while you took the deep breath. And I managed to pot a good pink and then a, a decent black. He left the pink quite horrible, where I just got to drop it in, coming away from the black. And the white was near the middle pocket, and, and then I cut the black in. And uh, that was a, a big turning point for me, because I knew that as long as I would just mind my work and just played, didn't make too many mistakes, and I had a great chance to go on and win. Absolutely incredible! Mark Selby was 8-3 down. He was 10-5 down. Ronnie comes forward and congratulates him. And isn't everybody delighted? A milestone in this very popular player from Leicester, Mark Selby makes one of the best comebacks I've seen for many, many years, and he wins the World Championship for the very first time. He's the 2014 Dapabet World Snooker Champion. Well done, Mark Selby. Congratulations to all the family. You talked earlier about it being every kid's dream in the game to become world champion. So few of us ever actually get to taste that feeling, Mark. And yeah. I remember talking to Sean Murphy about it, who had won it nine years prior to that, and he says he's not sure it ever really sinks in. So what was it like for you when that moment finally arrived and the dream was now reality? Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, it was, it was, just, it was surreal, really, because even like I always told myself, if I ever got to the world final and I was clearing up to win, I wonder how I'd feel. I, I kept thinking, like, I'm sure I'd be like really, really nervous because it's a huge tournament to win. And like, there's only a select, elite amount of people who go on and actually win the tournament. But I was the total opposite. I remember I'd done a ridiculous clearance. I potted a green along the black rail going up for the brown. Uh, potted the blue with the rest around the table. I potted the pink and then I had a high black to cut the black in. But I remember at that point, I just felt so relaxed. It's as if I was just out there just playing on my own. It was like, because I was so zoned in, I didn't feel any nerves clearing up at all, which is like crazy, really, because you think if you put somebody in that position for the first time to try and win that tournament, you'd think it would be anything but that. But uh, I think it was just, I was just trying so hard. I mean, I did t say to my father before he passed away, he said, look, just try your best and uh, obviously like try and become world champion one day. And I said, obviously, I'll try my best. And... I'm not guaranteed to be world champion, but I'll tell you one thing, I'll be giving it my all and trying to do it. So I think during that final, that's all, I, all that was in my head, especially that last frame clearing up. I thought once I got to that stage, there was no way in the world I was going to miss because I told him, look, if I get to that point, I'll be trying my best. And uh, I think that's my never say die attitude because it comes from him, really. You won it twice more in the years which followed soon after that, 2016 and 17. One of those you went in having had a really good season, the other one not so much. Mm. And that was interesting because it seemed that whatever your form coming into the Crucible, you seemed to have hit on a formula for going there and getting the job done. Yeah, I think the 2016 season was the year I won the UK as well, I think, was it? The UK and the World at uh, the same time, was it? The 16-17 season. World, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, I had a good season in the in the sixteen seventeen, I think it was, uh, going into the Wells, and I was quite quietly confident going there. But like I say, it's such a tough tournament to win. You could be the best player all season. I mean, you look at Robertson last year going into the World Championships; he was the best player on paper by a mile going in there. I put him favourite. He was playing the best out of anyone, and goes out in the last sixteen. So the form book sort of goes out the window when it comes to the World Championships. But in the back of my mind, I was quietly confident, knowing my form was good. Uh, but like I say, you go to the Crucible and anything can happen. So, uh, But to win it back-to-back, -back, 16 and 17, was incredible, really, because after beating Ronnie in 2014, if I'd have never won it again, I could retire happy. 75. He has played some unbelievable shots in this year's Betfred World Championship, it has to be said. What a turnaround. 10-4, as you said. Doesn't matter about the ball. Salvi, from the defending champion. It isn't that nice to see John.
coming forward, clapping the defending world champion and hugs all around. What a win for Mark Selby. That's his third world title in four years, and he becomes the best friend. 2017 world champion. Well played, boys. You win the world championship three times in four years, inevitably there's going to be a lot of scrutiny and analysis of your standing yep. in the game. And I think at that stage people were starting to use the expression all-time great. Mm. So how comfortable do you feel with that? As you said, you're not an arrogant person no. by any means, but in your own head, how does it feel when you hear people say that? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great honour to... To obviously be put up there with the other players who, who they class as the all-time great. But for me, I mean, I don't really see it like that. I just see myself as Mark Selby, the young lad who grew up on a council estate and didn't really have much money. Trousers didn't really fit him when he was playing the first year on the tour. And uh, I'm, I still feel as though I'm the same person. And hopefully everyone else thinks I'm the same. I don't feel like I've changed from when I first started to when I am now. Irrelevant what I've won. But I suppose when I retire and I look back, then from what people are saying, obviously it will probably hit home a bit more. Why I'm still competing, I don't like to class myself as a as an all-time great. I just think, well, yeah, I've won tournaments, great, but uh, I just want to go out there and try and win as much as I can win and, and try every match I'm playing. Another part of that scrutiny was people making you out to be a grinder and one-dimensional, mm. as if a player like that could possibly achieve all the things you yeah. have in the game. And you've made over 700 centuries. The thing I always say is, if you had someone who could score as heavily as that and he didn't have the tactical game, yeah. people would say, oh, well, he needs to brush up on that side yeah. of the game. But that's exactly what you did, and you allied that all-round game to your wonderful scoring power and didn't seem to get the credit for it. But I guess you're not really that bothered. No, not at all. And I think a lot of that comes from, because when the frames does go scrappy, I'm willing to just sit it out and be patient and, and not like... A lot of people get frustrated, you know, and they end up pushing the boat out and going for one, and and then the game becomes open again and... Obviously, they end up losing the frame. Where with me, if the game's scrappy, I'm thinking, well, I'm willing to scrap it out because obviously every frame counts and you want to win. So I think that sort of comes from that aspect where you look at some of the other players, they probably get frustrated just like they say, push the boat up, go for one, scatter the balls everywhere because they don't want to be there for another 10, 15 minutes. Where for me, I'd be out there all day if it means me winning the frame. Uh, and that's a grit and determination my dad always installed in me. He said, look, just try right till the end every ball, obviously. And, You've not lost the game until that last ball's potted, so don't give them nothing and uh, don't show nothing. And one thing I've really noticed, Mark, even when you've been at the absolute peak of your powers, you often struggle in early rounds. There seem mm. to be a lot of matches where you fall behind, but you're amazing at digging those out. Yeah. You seem to be able to produce that kind of attitude in every match, whether it's the world final or the first round of a smaller tournament. Yeah, a lot of the time in the past, uh, I've always been quite my own worst enemy at the start of matches because I go out there and sort of try and protect the match rather than go out there to win it at the start or sort of try not to lose, which is a big difference between trying not to lose and trying to win. Sometimes I go out there and think, right, obviously I don't want to get off to a bad start, so I'm probably a little bit too cautious and obviously not, don't go for my shots as much as what I should do. And then all of a sudden you free one down and you think, oh, I'm in trouble if I don't sort myself out, I'm going home. The next minute you play how you should have done at the start. And I think over the last few years I've been sort of renowned for that, hence the slow starts as well. So now obviously I've looked at it different and... You know, I've got nothing to prove anymore, so for the next few years while I'm playing, I just need to go out there and try and enjoy it. Especially even more so, having how the last year's been for me. Last year was complete right off on and off the table for obvious reasons, which I've stated and came out and spoke about. 
So for me now, it's just all about just trying to enjoy your game, you know, and more times than not, if you enjoy it, you play your best snooker. And you're alluding there to the mental health problems that you have spoken about, Mark. And you mentioned it a few minutes ago that it probably goes way back to experiences you had when you were younger. So it's always been there. But was it something this year that clicked in your head that made you think, I can't avoid this any longer? I've got to confront it now and deal with this. Yeah, I mean, like, to be fair to Vicky, I mean, I've been with Vicky since 2006. And she said to me when I first spoke about it, she said, look, she said, as far as I'm concerned, I know you as well as anyone. She said, I think you've been suffering since I've been with you since 2006. She says, there's always been a gap in the, in the season where you've sort of had a bit of a low and obviously you're a bit low and stuff and everything. And obviously back then when I was younger, Obviously, you just think, you know, you're having a rubbish day. And it wasn't really spoke about as much as it is now. Obviously, there wasn't as much awareness of what it is now. I mean, obviously, I'm sure it was still happening, but it wasn't as high profile as what it is with all these big names coming out and speaking about it. So uh, at the time, like I say, I just felt like it was just, you know, having a bad day and I'm sure tomorrow will be okay. And obviously, the longer it's gone on, because I've not spoken about it and not done nothing about it, it's the same as anything. Obviously, it's just snowboarded and then got worse and it got to a point where I thought, look, you know what, I can't just keep fighting this no more. I can't get through it on my own. I do need help. Uh, and in the end, it just come to a point where I said, look, obviously, if I, if I don't get help, and then God knows what would have happened. So obviously by speaking out was probably the best thing I'd done. And looking back, I wish I'd have done it a lot sooner than when I did do it. When you did speak out, it was right in the middle of the season, around mm. the time of the Masters. Yeah. I'm guessing you just wanted to get last season over with so you could get a break and really try to deal with all this? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was after I lost to Barry Hawkins in the Masters. Uh, we drove back the next day. Uh, but even in the morning of when I was playing Barry at night, Vicky didn't say anything. But after I lost to Barry, she said, look, I just knew you wasn't right in the day. She said, I didn't say anything to you because I didn't want to like spoil the matter or anything. She said, but... In my mind, I knew you couldn't win that night. Because I, I just know you better than anyone. I knew how you was acting. I knew how you was. Great to have someone in your life who'll be that honest yeah, with you, isn't brilliant. it? I mean, she's been my rock. I mean, if it wasn't for, for her, then yeah. I mean, I probably wouldn't be here today. So yeah, I mean, she's been brilliant through everything. So she said to me, look, I knew you couldn't win. She said, but I didn't want to say anything. And obviously after I lost, she said, look, Mark, you can't carry on like this. You need help and you need to speak out. But I'm always one of them where I thought, well, you know, if I speak out, I don't want people to just gather around and throw their arm around me. And every time I come to a comp, boy, is everything okay and all that. So for me to just say it in an interview and go out there, I'd have probably broke down and wouldn't have been able to say it. So for me, the easiest way for me to do it was obviously behind a keyboard and just basically come out. I'm still telling the world, but obviously I'm not like fronting it like head on. And then once people knew, then obviously I felt more comfortable of speaking about it because people know about it anyway, rather than just telling them and it coming as a shock to them. So... As you say, yeah, just after the Masters, uh, I said it, and when I when I spoke about it and announced it, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know what, I probably need a break from snook and just not play. Obviously, wasn't even planning on playing in the World Championships either. And uh, went to get help, spoke to a doctor down in London, psychiatric doctor there, and I said to him, look, I'm thinking about obviously having a break. And he said to me, he says, well, for me, why not obviously work with me alongside playing snooker for the start and just see how you go so because if you have a break straight away for me obviously like what you're going to do you're just going to be sat at home you've probably got more time to think about stuff at least if you're playing snooker you're getting help so you obviously are going the right way but it's sort of a little bit of a release and like once you're out there if you're playing you might not be thinking about nothing other than potting balls so i said okay i'll give it a go and we've done that for a few months but then it got to the point where i said to him look I'm playing snooker and I'm just going through the motions, losing and not enjoying it. And for me, if I'm not enjoying it, what's the point of going out there and playing? I'm just like going out there, not even competing, going to tournaments, knowing I can't possibly win the tournaments because I'm not enjoying it and I'm not right. So he said, okay, we'll have like a little break. So I pulled out of a few comps and then got myself right a few weeks before the world. And 
obviously went there and just played with a smile on my face. And for me, I know I lost to Bing Tao, but for me, just walking out there and being able to play and sort of enjoy it for the first time in nearly a year was like was like me winning another World Championships. Whether I won or lost, it was irrelevant. I went out there, played okay against Jamie Jones, played quite well against Jan. He played well, but I enjoyed it. And I walked away and, you know, I, I was happy. And since I've been working with him, I, I worked with him from January through until June. Uh, and I'm not working with him at the moment. I'm still doing everything he's telling me. I'm still on the medication. But I'm in a lot better place than where I was and I'm, I'm going in the right direction, thankfully. So do you feel now moving into the future, you've got a model in your head, as it were, of how to deal with this and that you can actually cope with it better from here on? Yeah, well, he's basically said to me, obviously, like, get into like, a bit of fitness, like running. He said because it releases a lot of good endomorphins, same as, like, similar to the medication, what releases the good endomorphins in, in your brain as well. So he said do that. He also got me to write something down every morning, something that I want to do that day, but I have to complete it, he said, because when you're in a depression state, you can easily think, oh, I need to go and take the papers to the accountants next week or something. Then you wake up and you feel rubbish. You think, oh, I'll tell you what, I'll do it tomorrow, and then it never comes, and then you think, I'll do it the next day, and it never comes. So he said, you need to write something down, whatever you want to do. It can be anything simple, take Sophia to the park, cook dinner, whatever it is, but you have to complete it. So it's sort of giving you a purpose of of doing stuff every day and uh, some days obviously I've woke up and, and not felt like doing it but I've still pushed myself to do it which I know by doing that I'm going in the right direction where if that was six months ago I'd have thought well I need to do that and if I didn't feel great I'd just lock myself at time and, and not do anything so yeah I'm going in the right direction doing everything he told me and uh, he's basically changed my life around really yeah has changed the mood entirely with the quick fire round where we just find out a little more about you okay. away from the table favourite movie Favourite movie uh, would be Shawshank Redemption. Great maybe. choice, great choice. Players you would go on a night out with? Players I would go on a night with would probably be Barry Hawkins, Mark Williams, Michael Holt and Joe Perry. Favourite song? Favourite song? Oh, that's a tough one. I've not really got a favourite song as such. I just like music in general from... Favourite band even? 80s, 90s. Favourite band? Bon Jovi would be up there. Oh, right. I've been to watch them a few times. Uh, very good. And obviously Kasabian. Yeah. Well, you've found yourself living on a prayer towards the end of a lot of matches <laughs> over the years and come through. Favourite holiday destination? Favourite holiday destination? Uh, we've been to Dubai a few times the last few years, which me and Vicky like, but I would have to say Cancun in Mexico because it's where me and Vicky got oh, married, yeah. so it's always a special place for us. And your ideal way to spend a day off? Ideal way to spend a day off would be just to do anything with Vicky and Sophia, whether it's just chilling the time or going out for a meal or doing something together as a family. Let's come back to talking about the World Championship then, because we haven't mentioned yet your most recent title, 2021. This time you were going in on the back of a really good season. I remember we used to talk to you so much about how you'd never won one of the home nations, and then you started winning them all the time. But all round, really, that 2021 season, the Milton Keynes season, let's call it, when everything pretty much was behind closed doors, had been a pretty good one for you coming into Sheffield. Yeah, I think I... uh, Did I win the European at the start of the season? Yeah. Scottish... Uh, against O'Sullivan in the final so yeah it was tough because it was a strange season you know I mean obviously a lot of our tournaments were behind closed doors it was sort of every tournament just felt the same uh, irrelevant what it was because it was just basically just playing with a black curtain so even when it was the UK championships it didn't feel mm-hmm. like the UK it just felt like a, the same tournament like groundhog day day after day but you know it was the same for everyone but uh, I played well as you say I, I sort of found some kind of motivation from somewhere because it was difficult to get yourself up for them playing in front of nobody 
but at the end of the day obviously it's still our job and still a lot of money to be won and like you say I remember having a good season going into Sheffield and obviously going there knowing I'd already won it three times I was obviously confident I was capable of winning it again. Sean Murphy your opponent in the final you beat him by 18 frames to 15 he's got a lot of regrets about that match because he says if you go and play you and you do your usual crucible thing you just come away and say well I got cell beat and what can you do about that but it didn't really turn out that way actually. No, no, I thought Sean played great all the way through the comp, you know, I mean, obviously we was both with Chris Emery at the time, uh, and Sean obviously like played fantastic, especially in the semi-final, his comeback against Kyron was brilliant, and I think leading up to that tournament, he'd not had a great season himself. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, obviously, he's gone there and obviously sort of reverted back to his sort of attacking style of play, which he even said himself, obviously, he prefers playing that way and he feels more confident playing that way, and rightly so, I mean, because that's what won him his world title when he, when he won it back in in 2005 so uh, yeah I thought it was great and he, he was a great final obviously tough to tough to play against Sean because we're good friends off the table as well grew up together so uh, yeah I mean it was, a, it was a good match I felt like I played okay uh, throughout, throughout, the, throughout the tournament and especially in the final I played okay uh, Sean some of his long potting I remember having him on the top rail a few times he's just smashing him off the, off the top cushion he's one of them players where when he's playing like that there's a lot of players you play and you think to yourself, like, go on, you want them to go for it because obviously you know it's a tough shot. But people like, when you play Neil Robertson and Murphy, their long game's so good, you're sort of thinking the opposite. But uh, yeah, when he was coming back at me, I think that clearance I'd done at the end, I can honestly say I don't think, if, if I hadn't cleared up then, I probably wouldn't be sitting here winning it four times because obviously Sean was looking the stronger, I think, out of the two of us. Here it goes, and that's the way, and White Vicky absolutely delighted. It's been a great match. Sean Murphy, take a bow, he's been absolutely superb. But Mark Service from day one when he's played his first match, looked to be queuing better than anybody, and he's carried on for the 17 days, and a very worthy winner. Mark Selby, Bedford, world snooker champion. 2021. It was such a special way to end that season after all the matches behind closed doors. We had a full house at the Crucible for the final. Yeah. And it just felt unique. It felt like it had been such a long time since we'd seen that. It's an interesting thing that a lot of players talk coming into the World Championship about how maybe it needs to move away from the Crucible. It needs mm. to go somewhere else. I've never heard you say that once. And look at your record there. So maybe there's something for other players to learn. Embrace the Crucible for what it is and you could end up with a record like yours. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, it's like the best thing we're playing. I mean, I know people say like the Masters is great now because there's 2,000 people and obviously the atmosphere and the noise is incredible. But for me, there's just the history behind the Crucible. Obviously, it's not the biggest venue we're playing, but when it's at one table set up, I don't think it's the best venue when it's two tables because it's quite tight and quite compact. But when it's down to the semi-final one-table setup with a full crowd, there's no better venue for me than playing snooker in. So I've been quite fortunate to, to be in the final many, many times and experience that. And uh, hopefully I can experience it again. So you're on four now. Obviously, Ronnie O'Sullivan has got to seven. He's equaled Stephen Hendry. I know you're not setting targets and mm. saying, I want that record or I want to overtake that record. But how aware are you, Mark, of your place in the game's history? And every time you win it, do you have a little think about where that now leaves you compared to the other greats? Uh, sometimes. But, I mean, I would like to win it once more. I mean, as it stands at the moment, I'm tied with Higgins on four. Obviously, Williams is on three. Uh, be good to try and win it once more and obviously be out there on my own at five obviously you've got Ronnie seven Hendry seven Davis six so uh, to be out there on my own on five would be good but you know 
obviously to win it four times was more than what I ever expected as a, as a young lad growing up you know obviously I aim to try and win it once so to win it four is incredible so I'll keep trying as long as I'm healthy and, and mentally okay then for me that's like, like winning the winning the world championship so why I'm in a good place as long as I can keep enjoying it and giving it a good go then who knows the first of those four, as we've said, was against Ronnie O'Sullivan, a real part of what's been a great rivalry between the two of you over the last 15 years or so. Would you call it a friendly rivalry, or is there a bit of an undercurrent there? And Is that something you actually enjoy? Yeah, I mean, I see it as a challenge every time I play Ronnie, you know, because as I said earlier in the interview, he's the greatest player to ever play our game for me. Uh, to still be playing the standard he's playing at the, at the standard we're playing at is incredible, really, at his age. And obviously, like, still the top of the game and the world champion. Is incredible. So uh, every time I play him, I always see myself as second favourite, and majority of the tour are. But I see it as a challenge as well, and I know that if I play well, I'm capable of winning. So I always enjoy and relish playing Ronnie, and I've been lucky enough to play him in all the three major finals and, and win against him in all the three major finals. So as far as friendship, I mean, I don't really know Ronnie that well. Over the years, we've sort of had like moments where we we speak a little bit, and then we sort of don't speak a little bit, but. You know, I've got nothing but respect for him as a player. As a person, we don't really know each other that well to be friends. You know, obviously we see each other at tournaments and say hello, but as a player, I've got nothing but respect for him. I mean, I think he's like one of the best ever. If you did get to know him a bit better, I suspect you might find a lot of common ground, actually. And the fact that you both had experiences with your dad, he lost his in a different way around a a similar age. So actually, there's a lot of similarity between the two of you. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, obviously, like like my upbringing's obviously been tough. Losing my dad when I was 16, obviously, like my mum sort of broke up with my father when I was eight so obviously that was like quite tough to take at the time obviously like being in a split sort of family uh, and then obviously losing my father at 16 who I was really close to and like you say you look at Ronnie's lifestyle growing up he's not had it easy either so in that aspect obviously we can relate to each other a little bit yeah but uh, as I say I mean who knows I mean obviously I, I don't ignore anyone when I go to tournaments I give everyone the time of day so if we get to know each other better then great if not then obviously I respect him for who he is he won the World Championship this year at the age of 46. Mm. You're 40 next year. Yep. And there was a time, I remember Ken Doherty saying, I don't think a player could now win the World Championship beyond the age of 40. Now, it's amazing how attitudes have changed because we've seen that disproved so many times. So there can still be a lot to come for you, I guess. You must feel you've got another 10 years or so as a really competitive force. Yeah, the biggest thing for me is like the hunger. Uh, obviously you need to stay healthy as well uh, as long as you're healthy if you've got the hunger then for me that's a, that's the biggest thing because when you get older obviously the sort of you, hunger can go a little bit you don't put so many hours in and obviously to go to tournaments you can't cheat this game you can't just obviously put a couple of hours in here and then come to tournaments and expect to win the big the big tournaments you need to be putting the work in on the table so the hunger's still there at the moment obviously I'm healthy which is good so as long as I maintain that aspect and then who knows you know you look at somebody like Ronnie that sort of inspires me knowing he's 46 and I've got seven years on him to still keep playing and knowing that I'm capable of still winning more tournaments so fingers crossed well you've contributed so much since you first came onto the circuit all the way back in the 1990s Mark and I'm sure there's a lot more still to come thanks so much for your time and for joining us on the World Snooker Tour podcast cheers Michael thank you next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast Welshman Jamie Jones on playing in a quarter final at the Crucible the events which led to his suspension from the game and the joy of coming through Q School to get back on the tour. I didn't want the lasting memory of Jamie Jones to be, oh, he was a good player, but he ended because he got banned. Like, that, that was the overwhelming thing of it. I mean, whatever goes on on the tour now, whether I achieve all my dreams or I don't do any good at all, I've come back and I've, and I've you know, given it a really good shot, you know. Um, yeah, he was, 
it was a we- it was a weird one really because I didn't expect to get through because I hadn't really played. I'd put about the best part of a month or two months practicing in between when I was working and stuff. So I've gone there thinking, look, it'd be great if I get through. If I don't, well, I have you know I'm not a full time player now. But then obviously, as I, you know, as I realised then, I'm back on the tour, it was like sort of time to go back to work then. So that's coming up next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast. And don't forget to check out our bonus content, The 147, rounding up the week's snooker headlines in 147 seconds, out every Tuesday. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and goodbye.